Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring sermons drawn from our pastoral staff and various guest preachers. continuing on in a sermon series that we started a few weeks ago that we're calling Overcoming Giants. It's a series that's looking at how God takes those small things, those small practices, and employs them to open up a world that is more broad, more everlasting than we could ever imagine. We've been talking about lifting up prayer. We've been talking about how we craft our stories. Last week, Tom Toole was talking about how we share our pain and about how these small practices are practices that can propel us to hear God's voice, to follow God's call, and to be people who overcome things that we never imagine we could overcome on our own. Not because, and it's because we're not doing it on our own. It's because God is the one who is calling us forward through those things. We've been using Eugene Peterson's book, Five Smooth Stones, as a guide. So if you hear me talk about Eugene Peterson a lot, that's why he titled his book, Five Smooth Stones, and after what David used, the five smooth stones that took down Goliath, the small things that can overcome the large giants in our lives. Today we're talking about naysaying, which I mean is probably most of our favorite thing. We all know how to say no, but the question is, when do we say no and why? And we're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes to be our guide today at the very, very end of Ecclesiastes. Now, maybe you've read Ecclesiastes, maybe you haven't. It's in the Hebrew Bible. It's a fairly thin book. It's a wisdom book, and it's written by a person who calls themselves Koheleth. Koheleth in Hebrew simply means pastor. It means convener. It was written by the leader of that particular faith group. And if you haven't read Ecclesiastes yourself, chances are you've probably heard some of those lyrics. If any of you are fans of the birds, anyone? There is a season, turn, turn, turn. That comes from Ecclesiastes. There is a time to live and a time to die, a time to um, sow and a time to reap. So we are at the very end of that book. Um, and we're going to hear what Ecclesiastes, what Koheleth's final instruction is to the people of Israel as they set off yet again into another journey of another day. Another practice of trying to be a faithful person who follows God. And this is what Koheleth says. We're looking at the message, which was written by Eugene Peterson, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Koheleth says, but regarding anything beyond this, anything beyond of what he has said already, regarding anything beyond this, dear friend, go easy. There's no end to the publishing of books, and constant study wears you out so you're no good for anything else. The last and final word is this, fear God, do what God tells you. And that's it. 
Eventually, God will bring everything that we do out into the open and judge it according to its hidden intent, whether it's good or evil. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. God, it is your insight that we are seeking, not human insight. It is your hope that we are thirsty for, not the shallow promises of our society. It is your truth that we are after, not something that will placate us into making it through the day, but something that will steady us as we journey with you toward eternity. We pray, God, that you will speak to our hearts, that you will reveal to us those things that we struggle to reveal to ourselves, and that you will draw us closer to you today and throughout this week, that we might journey with you in times that are joyful and in times that are sorrowful, knowing that regardless of what our lives consist of, you are always with us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in seminary, there was a man named Jim who worked in the mailroom. Jim was the kind of guy who really knew how to fill a space. He was a big guy with a big personality. He had a booming voice and a deep belly laugh. He didn't necessarily have a gift for matching faces with names, but the truth is none of us ever knew it because when we were rushing in to grab our mail in between classes, Jim would always greet us as though he knew each and every one of us, as though we were old friends who had some inside joke to catch up on. Now, Jim loved football. He was a fan of the Cleveland Browns. He and his wife, Noreen, would often watch the Browns play from local sports bar where Jim would always order a cheesesteak. And there was one day when the Browns were playing particularly terribly that out of frustration, Jim grabbed his dill pickle spear out of his empty basket and he shook it fiercely at the TV and began to utter some choice words. And then, on the very next play, the Browns scored a touchdown. Jim couldn't believe it. And from that moment on, he knew exactly what he needed to do in order to help his favorite team win. And that is how Pickle Power was born. Every game after that, Jim and Noreen would violently shake their pickle spears at the TV whenever the Browns were playing badly. They didn't even like pickles, but they always had to make sure there was one in their basket. And it's funny because this superstitious ritual began, began to be appreciated by the other patrons at the bar, and pretty soon they found that it was contagious and everyone was shaking pickles. Finally, Jim and Noreen's notoriety extended beyond that sports bar and Visa credit card featured them in a commercial that they had on how we rely on our superstitions to get us through. It's amazing how powerful superstitions can be 
And it's funny because it doesn't really take very much for a superstition to take hold. It only takes this small moment to create a belief that lasts a lifetime or longer, that might even last for generations and centuries. Many superstitions actually get their origins from religion. For instance, that practice of throwing spilled salt over your shoulder, that actually began, they believe, with da Vinci's The Last Supper. In that famous mural, da Vinci had painted some salt spilled in front of Judas. And so it's said that from there, people began to believe that they needed to throw spilled salt over their shoulders, specifically your left shoulder, so that they could blind the devil who no doubt lurked behind them. And by blinding him with salt, they would prevent the devil from tempting them to act badly. Da Vinci's Last Supper is also thought to be where the superstition against the number 13 originated because there were 13 men painted in that mural and it's believed that Judas was the final 13th person to arrive at that dinner. And then Friday the 13th, man, that even compounds the bad luck that the number 13 has because it is said that Fridays were the day that Adam and Eve first ate the fruit. It said that Friday was the day that Cain killed his brother Abel. Friday was the day that the temple of Solomon was toppled. And it said that it was a Friday that Noah first set sail. Superstitions and religion have always gone hand in hand. And it's not necessarily difficult to see why. Another professor of mine from seminary once asked, once someone lets the supernatural in it all, how do we draw the line between what is permissible and what is not? If, for example, one accepts miracles or demons, angels or telepathy, then why not astrology and fortune-telling, premonitions of the future, ghosts, witches, werewolves, and vampires? See, once we open ourselves to faith in an all-power and yet all-invisible God, it can seem like a very short step to believing in other invisible powers and forces that are influencing the world around us sometimes. It seems like having a faith in God and a faith in magic aren't that far apart. But there is an important difference between God and magic, between God and superstition. Eugene Peterson words it well. He says, magic and faith have one thing in common. They both deal with the supernatural, but everything else about them is different because magic is an impersonal manipulation and control. It's a way of getting. Whereas faith is a personal response to God, inviting God to do what God will in us and offering of obedience to walk where God leads. Peterson says that when we practice faith, we come to God not to get our way, but to get God's way. We come not to acquire a means of impressing our friends with our access to power, but to let God make an eternal impression on us. Peterson believes that humanity 
is greedy for miracles, greedy for changing the circumstances we find ourselves in, because we are greedy for the kind of power that can change our circumstances with minimal effort and minimal sacrifice on our part. And perhaps that's why superstitions are so vast and varied and valued in humanity throughout millennia, including in our society today, because on some level, practicing a superstition is our way of trying to exercise the power of God without God actually having to be involved. This longing for magic and the practice of superstition, it's not new. Throughout the Bible, we read stories of God's people being tempted by superstition and magic, stories about people who come to believe that by shaking pickles or not changing their socks or holding their breath when they drive past a cemetery, they could somehow increase the yield of their crops or come into good fortune or change the outcome of a football game. In ancient times, there were whole religions based off of superstitious ritual. Baalism was just one of them. It was a religion that tried to close that great chasm between humanity and the divine, between people and this particular god, Baal, with superstition. If these ancient people wanted something in our life, anything in their life, wealth, less illness, more power, less conflict, if they wanted anything in their life, all they needed to do was go to the temple to make a sacrifice or to drink some temple wine, or to visit a temple prostitute, and Baal would give it to them. It didn't require any sustained attention on Baal. Baal wasn't asking for any relationship, wasn't looking for obedience or ongoing faithfulness. Once the people left the temple, they could return to their everyday life and not think about Baal again, not think about Baal again until they wanted something else. And in ancient times, that kind of holy relationship, divine relationship, was the ideal. Baalism was massive. It was expansive, pervasive, because people have always wanted to have the power of God without God being present or involved. People have always wanted the power of God without having to have the energy of an ongoing relationship or commitment or faithfulness to the God who is actually all-powerful. And so that's what this book of Ecclesiastes is about. The author of the book, Koheleth, this pastor, he's speaking about the contortion and the corruption of religion in the lives of the people. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Koheleth is pointing out that the people were treating God like magic rather than treating God like God. They came to God in order to get what they wanted. They didn't come to God to get what God wanted for them. Eugene Peterson, again, he paints this really beautiful picture about what Ecclesiastes is about. He says that the problem that Koheleth was facing was that the center of mainstream religion was clogged with religious debris and theological junk. The river of God's revelation was no longer flowing freely. It was backing up from a logjam of staggering proportions. That white 
water face of early Israel that was clean and rapid in its flow was now collecting in pools in the closed up stream bed. And the waters were starting to stink from stagnation and worse, he says. Enterprising entrepreneurs had set up shop on the banks and were bottling that polluted stuff and selling it as holy water to the tourists. That, Eugene Peterson says, is what Koheleth was dealing with. So when Koheleth tells the Israelites to go easy, to not exhaust themselves in staying up to date with the latest practice that will somehow lasso God's power under their control to only concern themselves with one thing, with respecting God and following where God leads. Koheleth was telling them back then and is telling us today to shake off our desire for superstition to shake off our desire to exercise power without effort or sacrifice and to concern ourselves only with a devotion and focus on the God who truly can change our world's circumstances and provide us with lasting answers. Hundreds of years after Koheleth wrote Ecclesiastes, Jesus found himself also committed to clearing out that theological junk from the clear waters of our faith. That's what Jesus' conversations are about when he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, you see, were faithful Jews. They were devout. They weren't these superstitious, you know, new agey, trying to find the next new thing kind of people. They wanted to make God happy. And so they had developed some shortcuts and some rules to help ensure that all of the people could make God happy together. But they were rules that extended far beyond those holy commitments of preserving life and practicing rest and demonstrating justice, far beyond what God was actually asking them to do. The Pharisees would strain gnats from their wine, they would chastise people who would lead their animals to get water on the day of rest, and they would make big shows of giving their money to the temple and to the poor. And over time, these practices became more like superstition than faithfulness. Over time, the Pharisees came to believe that somehow doing these rituals could autopilot their relationship with God. But Jesus told them that God didn't want a mechanized relationship. God didn't want their obedience without their devotion. He didn't want them to be going through the motions without paying any attention because it was only a matter of time until they got lost. Have any of you been to an amusement park? Raise your hand. Have any of you been to an amusement park with someone that you more or less want to keep track of? Have you ever found that if you're walking through a crowd and you get distracted by your phone or by something that's happening over there, some argument that's happening over there, it takes how long for you to lose track of that person that you vaguely want to keep track of? It doesn't take very long, does it? We try to find ways to get around that. Have you ever seen those people who wrap their children with leashes? I mean, it's effective to a certain level, but it ruins it for everyone else when we're tripping over the leash, right? It's not that effective. 
Friends, it's like that. God wants our attention. There is so much coming at us. There's so much coming down the river. God doesn't, he's not going to leash us. He doesn't want us to just know that we're going to meet over here at 12 o'clock. God wants us to be with it, in it, together. God wants us to be paying attention through the crowd and the distractions so that we do not lose our connection with where God is going. Our Christian landscape today, we would like to think that, you know, all of this stuff that Koheleth is dealing with is you know, long gone. That's, that, that's for, you know, back then. We're much more sophisticated today. We have much more knowledge. We're much more sincere in our faith. We would like to think that, but our Christian landscape today has its own theological junk. If you've seen any of the rise in devotion to QAnon, if you have seen the rise of Christian nationalism, if you have ever come across the curiosities of biblical numerology or those trends, that would have us praying the prayer of Jabez or eating a biblical diet or telling us that our faith could only be exercised by voting a certain way or reading certain books or not reading certain books or excluding whole groups of people from the faith. If you have ever encountered that, then my friends, you have encountered the theological junk of our era. We are still subject to that debris that clogs the clear and rushing waters of our faith. Religious superstition is still alive and well in our society. It's still alive and well in our churches. It's still alive and well in our hearts. But when that happens, when we find ourselves adhering to these superstitious tricks, when we sense that our motivation has become focused on us getting what we want, following our own way rather than following God's way, then I urge us today and this week, my friends, let's take a pause, let's turn away, let's say no. Because the truth and the good news about our faith is that God does provide us more than we could ever garner for ourselves, and God heals us in ways that we cannot secure for ourselves. The way that God strengthens and sustains us, my friends, is not so fragile that it's in a threat of collapse if we don't employ a certain superstition. We don't need to shake pickles at God in order to improve God's stats. I'll close with one quote from Peterson. He says, when religious knowledge becomes an impersonal item of information or it's used impersonally, then it ceases to be biblical. If it's used to put a distance between persons, then something has gone wrong. If it's used to put another person in his or her place, something has gone wrong. And if it's used to improve life apart from faith in God, then something has gone wrong, friends. This week, today, throughout the next few months of us trying to live our lives of faith, let's do all we can to make sure that it all goes as right as it can. The best news about it is, all we have to do is respect God and follow. Nothing else. We can't mechanize it. All we have to do is fear God and the rest is taken care of. Amen. You have been listening to a production of San Marino Community Church. 
Find our worship services on YouTube or subscribe to our podcast on Spotify.